Good morning. This morning we'll be reading from Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. If you could stand for the reading of God's word, that would be wonderful. It's on page 1164 in your pew Bibles. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This is God's word. In a lot of ways, that song is the sermon, so we could really just pray and go home right now, but we will uh, go ahead and spend some time in Philippians together this morning. So if you can find your Bibles again, um, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. If you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you, you can find that on page uh, 1164. Thinking recently, it's... Now, just over 10 months since we've been here, and uh, I've become convinced that there's a strong parallel between New England weather and life in a fallen world. Now, that doesn't mean that New England weather is particularly unpleasant, but you never know what it's going to do. Uh, never know what to expect. Everything changes so suddenly. Uh, I was glorying in the warm spring day on Wednesday at lunch, you know, leaving my coat in the office and going outside. And as I drove home a few hours later, I had to turn the heater on in the car because it had dropped 20 degrees. Um, you know, last winter, Boston had 81 inches of snow. And we've had nine so far this year. Uh, it's unpredictable. It changes quickly. And then sometimes... When you're longing for change, it just stays exactly the same for, you know, what seems like forever. So we find that same fickle unpredictability in life, especially life in a fallen world, a world that has been corrupted by sin and human rebellion. It doesn't work the way that God designed it. We never quite know what we're going to find from one day to the next. Things can change quickly. On Monday, you're sitting at your desk at work, pinching yourself that you get to do this job for a living. On Tuesday, you receive the memo that your department's being outsourced. The joy of moving into your dream home. All of these years you've been waiting for, and then it's overshadowed by a barrage of foreclosure notices just a few years later. The soccer game of your high school career, you know, and the crowds are roaring for you. And all of a sudden, that one wrong step and your season's over, you know, can change like that. And then sometimes we wish it would change, but everything seems to carry on in the same manner. The new job that will answer your financial frustrations doesn't end up changing a blessed thing. You know, spending years and years simply coexisting alongside your spouse, living your separate lives together, 
and you're longing for more, waiting for their heart to thaw, but spring never comes. And with the fluctuating circumstances of life, so often our joy, our contentment in life fluctuates with it. On a good day, when life goes the way we planned, we feel good. We feel stable, secure, we're pleasant to be around. But when life crests and then we feel like it's, we're starting to plummet, we're filled instead with anxiety and fear. We get edgy and sharp with those who are close to us. We grasp for control or we look for the nearest escape. Then things turn again and we're happy. You know, the, the, the sun has come out on a cold New England day. And then the clouds roll back in and, and, you know, the whole cycle continues on. And as life takes us up and down, so our joy and our satisfaction in life go up and down with it. But what might life look like if our joy and our contentment were able to travel above our circumstances? If you drive across country in a car, you're going up and down with every hill of the land, every bump of the road. But when you fly, you know, the, the ground below you is still going up and down, but you don't feel it. What would it look like if our delight was consistent even when our experience wasn't? Is that even possible? And if so, what would it take? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, consistent joy is not only possible, it's commanded. It's commanded. He said several times in the book of Philippians that we've been going through for several months now, he's told us several times to rejoice or to rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. And now in chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, he tells us the secret of that consistent joy. A joyful contentment that travels above life's changing circumstances. And the reality is, apart from learning this secret and employing it, we will be unable to fully carry out anything else that Paul has told us about in the book. Our relationships with one another as a community will remain stagnant and self-centered. Our passion and involvement in our mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth will remain shallow and short-lived. Everything about our calling to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ turns on learning and applying this lesson. We're going nowhere apart from it. A joyful contentment that travels above life's circumstances. And that can be found in only one place. In treasuring and trusting Christ. Treasuring and trusting Christ. So let's ask God to open our hearts and our eyes and to give us ears to hear him this morning as we look into his word. God, we do pray that you would speak we recognize that you are speaking in your word. God, give us ears to hear. 
Give us hearts ready to be changed by your gospel and give us a clear vision of your satisfying son. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to begin looking at the last major chunk of Paul's letter to the ancient church in Philippi. We'll conclude our series in Philippians next week. Um, and then we'll move into Easter and, and late April we'll begin uh, the next series going through the book of Ecclesiastes. So I'm excited about that. But uh, as Paul winds down his letter here to the Philippians, he returns to the subject he started with at the beginning of the book. Their faithful partnership with him in his mission to advance the gospel. To make the good news of Jesus Christ and his life death and resurrection known. And Paul expresses again his thankfulness that this church, of all churches in Macedonia, has sacrificially come alongside him to help him proclaim that gospel. Specifically by partnering in giving, as I'll explain later in verses 14 and 15. So he starts this last section in verse 10 by saying, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Of course, when he says at last here, he's not saying that you know they had forgotten or were stalling or something. He, he clarifies, indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So, it's not that they were delaying. In fact, their hearts and their minds were in the right place. The word concern here is the same word that we've seen several times in this book. Uh, translated mind or thinking or attitude or perspective. So when Paul told us earlier to be of one mind back in chapter 1 or have this mind among you that's also in Christ Jesus or at the beginning of chapter 4, think the same in the Lord. That's that same word, think, mind, concern. So the Philippians had the right perspective. They just didn't have the chance to do anything with it and now they've had that chance and they were acting on their concern for Paul. And, and so the reviving of that concern was particularly joyful for him. It had been a long time since anyone was able to help as he was in prison for preaching the gospel. In fact, that word revive there is the picture of a flower coming into bloom again after a long winter. So when Epaphroditus showed up, uh, with the Philippians' gifts, it was like stepping outside this week and seeing that first little flower in the front yard. You know, there's there's kind of a joy and a relief that with the sign that winter's over and spring is beginning. So Paul's heart is rejoicing. But before he moves on, continuing to thank them for this, he feels inclined to clarify one thing. That this joy that he has, has nothing to do with his needs being met. His joy has nothing to do with his needs being met through their financial gift. He says in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. 
So Paul's thanking them, but he feels inclined that he has to stop and clarify that uh, he, he doesn't want the church to misunderstand his gratitude as being connected to his needs being met. And if you think about what he's been saying to them throughout the book, it makes sense that he should need to clarify it. He's been telling them over and over again, be satisfied in Jesus, lay your life down, share in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, He doesn't want them to come to the end of the letter and say, oh, now I see what Paul's up to. Paul needs money. We sacrifice joyfully and he benefits joyfully. I get it, Paul. He doesn't want them to come to that conclusion. And you can see how it might be easy to do. So he steps out of his thought. He, He derails his train of thought to make this crucial clarification. And that's where our focus is going to be this morning. Paul wants to make sure that we know his joy and therefore our joy are not to be contingent on our needs being met. Not to be contingent on our needs being met. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about meeting needs. He does. Uh, He certainly does. Jesus says in Matthew 7, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks him for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. We don't do that in our relationships. Well, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? And Paul says at the end of our own chapter here, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So God cares about meeting needs. And he wants us to take our needs to him in prayer. But Paul's talking about whether or not our joy, our contentment, our satisfaction in life is contingent on those needs being met. And he says that his isn't. Neither should ours be. His joy is deeper than that and it travels above his circumstances. He has learned the secret of contentment. Contentment. Well, what does that mean? Jeremiah Burroughs uh, was a Puritan pastor in the Church of England in the 17th century. And he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. In it, he defines contentment like this. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I'll read that again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, Burroughs takes the rest of his book to unpack that definition. And I would highly recommend the read. You can read it online for free or download it as an e-book for 99 cents. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. But I think he captures the essence of what Paul's aiming at here quite beautifully. Contentment is not just putting a good face on it. So it's not just pretending like nothing's wrong with life. 
hiding our frustration or our emotion. It's inward. It's inward. It's not just what we say with our mouths, but what we feel in our hearts. Neither does contentment carry a bitter edge or pine for the greener grass on the other side. It doesn't spend its days lusting resentfully after what others have or obsessing over what used to be or fixating anxiously on what is to come. There's a sweetness and a quietness to it, not an edginess. It's not a resignation or, or a passive approach. Either. It's not just saying, well, you know, who cares? I'm just not going to worry. It's not that either. It's a restfulness, a quiet confidence, a peace. Like the, the rest that an anxious child finds curling up into her father's arms while the storm is beating outside. It's that kind of rest. It's not a confidence or rest that's found from within you. So contentment is not about achieving some sort of self-sufficiency. It's not Brandon versus the world and I come out victorious because of my hard work and my resolve. Uh, you know, the self-help gurus tell us that we need to take matters into our own hands. You know, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. If it's going to be, it's up to me. And so we... Seize control. No, contentment is surrender. It's surrender. Not necessarily surrender to our circumstances, but surrender to our God, who is able to carry us above our circumstances. Surrender to His wise and fatherly disposal. So, Entrusting ourselves to the God who is wise enough to order the world and work all things according to his purposes and loving enough to do so as a tender father. It's surrender to that God. Contentment is being joyfully satisfied in God while all of the world is at war around us. And so finally... Contentment is something that remains consistent in every condition. It involves a delight and a joy that don't ebb and flow with life's circumstances, but that travels above them. And of course, that's precisely what we see in Paul's description. Look again at the scope of his contentment in verses 11 and 12. Look how he pairs off these sets of opposite circumstances. So, being in need or having plenty, well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. So, he captures the, the edges in order to say everything in between. Circumstances are not a factor in Paul's joy. He's content in every condition. And it's interesting that he feels the need to specify both want and plenty. It's easy to think about the importance of uh, contentment when we're in need, when we feel like there's a problem that needs to be solved. The apartment is too little for this small family. We need more space. The bills are stacking up. We need more money. 
And when we have needs, we can see how easy it is for our hearts to become edgy and anxious and uh, to focus on what we don't have instead of what we do, which only fuels our discontentment, uh, our frustration and anger, even our disappointment with God. So we see the importance of speaking contentment into lives that have need. But he says we need to have contentment in plenty as well, in abundance. And if you think about it, that can be just as large a threat to our contentment as being in need. Once you've tasted all that this world can offer, it's really hard not to want more and more. You know, one more dollar, one more pair of shoes, one more video game. And so all of a sudden we too find ourselves anchoring our contentment in our stuff, in our situation which means we're just as prone to that same roller coaster of emotion and experience, uh, roller coaster of circumstances. So we need a contentment that does not rest in either circumstance, but that travels above both, above both plenty and want. How is that possible? How is that possible? What's Paul's secret? He says he's found the secret. Of this, what is it? We need a contentment that comes from being satisfied in Jesus, from treasuring and trusting Christ, being satisfied in Jesus. That's where Paul anchors his satisfaction and strength in verse 13. Now, of course, he said this several times in this book so far. This sermon should feel a little bit redundant. Because Paul has hit this note several times in the book. But he has to hit it again, and so we hit it again. Now, most notably, he said in in chapter 3, verse 8, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. That's that picture of nothing else in this world can compare or satisfy compared to Christ. We've heard this before. But he says it here again in chapter 4, verse 13, which is probably one of the most popular and yet slightly misused verses in the book. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, we take that verse and we paste it on the wall in the gym above the bench press machine. You know, I can do everything. You know, we... we, quote it to each other before the soccer game or the basketball game. We read it before our long bike ride or our hike or or we, we go over it in our head before the test or the sales pitch. We take it as God's promise that we can do whatever it is we set our minds to because Jesus will give us strength. But when Paul says everything here, He's talking about the same thing that he's been talking about in verses 11 and 12. The ability to be joyfully content in any circumstance, especially as he serves to advance the gospel. So we need to pay attention to the context. Uh, Otherwise, we run the risk of being surprised and confused when God doesn't show up with the strength to, you know, run that race in the 10 seconds that I prayed I'd be able to rent, you know, or, or even of setting up false ideas and expectations for others. 
as uh, Kent Hughes, one of my former pastors, Riley comments, are you a non-golfer who wants to shoot 70? Understand that muttering, I can do all things through him before you tee off, will turn your fellow golfers into atheists. That's not what God's promising in that verse. But his point is no less revolutionary. The impossibility of having a joyful contentment that travels above our circumstances is made possible through the strength and satisfaction that's found only in Jesus. That is an amazing promise. So what we need is to treasure and to trust Jesus, to let him be our satisfaction and our sufficiency. Only then is joyful contentment a true possibility. The consistency and strength of our joy in life is contingent on whatever it is we're putting that joy in. Only Jesus. So again, citing Hughes, both abundance and loss will pass, but Christ remains the same. Christ remains the same. So we need to treasure and trust Christ. And that's what we'll spend the rest of our time thinking about, those two things. First, contentment requires treasuring Jesus. And by treasuring Christ, I mean, you know, to treasure something. You you have an heirloom at home that you're very care. It's important to you. You show it off when company comes. You... You just, you're happy. There's some warmness in your heart when you look at that thing. Treasuring Christ is to be enthralled with and utterly satisfied in Jesus. So contentment requires that kind of treasuring, that kind of delight and satisfaction. And there are two reasons for this. First, because only Jesus can truly satisfy only Jesus can truly satisfy. Everything else in this world is like New England weather. You know, it comes and goes. It delights for a day, and tomorrow it disappoints. Only Jesus can satisfy. What happens if I treasure my marriage more than I treasure Jesus? Take an example. Well, my joy in life will be contingent on how I feel my marriage is going on how loved I feel from my spouse, on whether or not my needs are being met. And when they go unmet, my joy goes away. And I can respond either by pulling back and checking out, so, you know, protecting myself from being hurt further, or I can grasp at things and try and manipulate and control in order to regain what I want in life. My joy's fickle, goes up and down. It's why the husband ends up being married to his job more than his wife. Or why he ends up sneaking around her back to look at porn. It's why the wife escapes into, from reality into her romance novels. You know, wishing her husband would love her the way that Gaston loves Desiree. I mean, marriage is a good thing. God designed it, but it is not God. And it cannot satisfy. Neither does Gaston. 
or work or porn or anything else. Neither do friendships or sports or children or money or career or home or vacations or retirement plans or even church ministries. None of them can ultimately satisfy every single one of them can be taken away like that. We treasure Jesus because he's the only thing that truly satisfies. He's the one who knows us more deeply than anyone else because he made us. And he is the one who cherishes us more passionately than anyone else because he spilled his blood to save us. And if you have Jesus, then clinging to all of the goods and kindred of this world for your identity and significance is like sitting before a great meal and trying to fill your stomach just by smelling the aroma. This world is the shadow. Jesus is the substance. And if we're satisfied in him... We can be content with the lowliest of circumstances because our contentment isn't contingent on our need, but on our God. So we we treasure Christ because he's all we got. He's the only thing that's satisfied. But there's a second reason. We treasure Jesus not just because he meets our needs, but because he alone is worthy of being treasured. He alone is worthy of being treasured. Listen to how Jeremiah Burroughs puts this. A man who has learned the art of contentment is the most contented with any low condition that he has in the world, and yet he cannot be satisfied with the enjoyment of all the world. A little in the world will content a Christian for his passage, his time on earth. But all the world and 10,000 times more will not content a Christian for his portion, his inheritance. His soul can be filled with nothing else but God. Nothing in the world. It must only be God himself. And why nothing else? Because all the prosperity in this world is ultimately unworthy of our delight when compared with Jesus. We treasure Christ not just to meet our needs, but first and foremost, because he alone is worthy of our affection and our delight, our glory. As pastor and author John Piper says, the Christian gospel is about the glory of Christ, not about me. It's not about my being made much of by God but about God mercifully enabling me to enjoy making much of him forever. Think about that. It's about God mercifully enabling me to enjoy making much of him forever. That's what the gospel is aiming for. We exist to glorify God. We were redeemed to glorify, to make much of God. In fact, it's dishonoring Not to be satisfied in Jesus. It's dishonoring to God. Not to be satisfied in Jesus. Because we're giving the love and affection and honor that he alone deserves to something else. 
We're, look, we're treating something else like God. But if I run to Jesus for my joy, for my contentment, for my satisfaction, then I'm treating him the way that he deserves to be treated. I'm treating him like God, and that brings him glory. You want to delight and bring glory and honor to God? Treasure Christ. Let him be your joy. Now, that's really hard. You know, we see that on paper. Returning home after the service is a different thing. That's really hard, especially when you are in a place of desperate need. When you've been longing for something your whole life and the Lord has just never opened that door. You know, more space, a spouse, a child, a friend who actually gets me and knows my heart. A job that you actually like to go to the next day. How can I think of contentment? I mean, it's fine for you, but you don't know my story. You know what? I don't know your story. There are a lot of stories in this room. I don't know them all. But Jesus knows your story. Because he's the author of it. And whereas it's really hard sometimes to figure out how in the world can what I'm experiencing have anything to do with God's plan and purposes for our good, which is what he promises. It can't be any more counterintuitive than Jesus' own story. That the God of the universe would rescue his rebellious world by taking on flesh and stepping into it, only to be unrecognized, rejected, dismissed, ridiculed, beaten, and murdered by his own creation. Like a thief or a slave. That doesn't make sense. That's a story that doesn't compute. But God didn't waste a moment of Jesus' life, nor a drop of his blood. Every nanosecond of his story was spent executing God's plan of redemption for you. Neither will God waste your suffering. If you will be trained by it, if you will treasure Jesus and trust him to carry you above your circumstances. Because the simple, ma- the simple fact of the matter, when we talk of this thing of treasure in Christ, we can't do it. It's too much. I'm too selfish. I'm too weak. We can't do it. So beyond treasuring Jesus, we also need to trust him. We, he must be our satisfaction, but he must also be our strength. He must also be our strength. I can do everything through him who strengthens me. Once again, Burroughs says, A Christian finds satisfaction in every circumstance by getting strength from another. By going out of himself to Jesus Christ. By his faith acting upon Christ. 
And bringing the strength of Jesus Christ into his own soul, he is thereby enabled to bear whatever God lays on him by the strength that he finds from Jesus Christ. God's not asking you to do something that you can't do because he already knows you can't do it. He's asking you to throw yourself on his son who can strengthen you. Now, this does not mean that we don't work hard at our walk with God, at our obedience to him, at living joyfully. We do. We work very hard at it, but it's with the strength that Jesus supplies. It's very similar to what Paul says in Colossians 1.29. Speaking of his mission to advance the gospel, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul's working hard with the strength God supplies. We need to treasure Christ. We need to trust Christ to believe that he's stronger than our circumstances. Think about that. Do I really believe when I'm in the midst of something that's driving me, that Jesus is stronger than my circumstances? That he is sovereign over them. He hasn't slipped off of his throne and the light and then the world fell apart in that moment. And I I'm the casualty of that. He's sovereign. And that he is enough to satisfy us, whatever those circumstances may be. And when you're satisfied in Jesus, when he is our strength, such that our joyful contentment can travel above our circumstances then we're actually free to love each other as a community in Christ, according to the pattern of the gospel. We're free to obey, uh, to obey the rest of what he's been saying in Philippians about laying our lives down for one another to help each other make much of God. If Jesus is enough, I don't have to worry about you taking advantage of me. I don't have to worry about whether or not you deprive me of the, recogni- the recognition that I so long for, because Jesus recognizes me. He calls me brother and friend. And so I'm free. I'm content. I can joyfully die to self and love others as Christ has loved me. Community is possible. Genuine, gospel-shaped community is possible only when I'm satisfied in Jesus. If Jesus is enough, I don't have to fear what life or this world might take away from me. I can joyfully bear witness to Christ and share in his sufferings to make him known to others. Because there's nothing this world can take away from me if Jesus is everything. I'm free to lay my life down in glad surrender for the advance of the gospel. We will only be free to be faithful in our mission for Christ if we are satisfied in Jesus. Because otherwise, everything else is going to be competing for our affection and our time and our allegiance. And so the question is, am I satisfied in Christ? Is he enough? Is Jesus enough sent such that my joy and delight as his child can travel above life circumstances.
As Habakkuk 3:17 through 19 says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread the heights. May Jesus be enough for us. May God's name be blessed, whatever our lot, to the glory of God and the joy of his people. Let's pray. Lord, you are calling us to something impossible. The very thought of it makes us weak and weary. Makes some of us feel pretty insecure. Makes some of us feel ashamed and guilty. Because we don't treasure you that way. And we know that we don't have it in us just to muster that up. It brings conviction to some of us because we know we're treasuring something else. And we don't like the thought of giving it up. We're content for a little while to do without you. And we're not sure we want to change. And some of us are crying in our hearts for that kind of treasure. An emptiness and a longing. And we've been bouncing around to a hundred things trying to fill it. And all the time, it's staring at us in the face of the cross. God, may we May our hearts be melted by your grace to find our satisfaction and our joy in your Son. May we remember every day when we wake up that our greatest need has been met in Christ. That we've been declared not guilty of our sins if we have believed in him that we have been reconciled and adopted into your family, and that with that comes all the inheritance, the chief prize of which is you. May we treasure Christ, and so be useful as your children and as your servants to make much of you. In Jesus' name, amen.